Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today has been involved in martial arts for almost 40 years and opened his first school over 25 years ago. He holds belts in numerous styles and has been a martial arts business consultant since 2010. At the age of 38, he pursued his childhood dream and became a professional wrestler, actively wrestled for Millennium Pro Wrestling from 2013 to 2019, becoming a Triple Crown Champion and the first ever MPW Unified Champion. He's an active member of his community and serves on the board of directors of several local organizations and community events. Recently, he and his wife have become partners in Country Harvest Restaurant and Coach's Old Fashioned Ice Cream Parlor. He's married, has two children, and is the owner of Moorpark, Krav Maga, and Karate, and is the host of the Master Motivation Podcast. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Jason Flame. How are you doing today, sir? I am amazing. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Excited to have a chat with you today. I'm glad. I'm glad you you agreed to it, and I, I'm looking forward to, to learning more about you. And how we kick things off on the show, I, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to know where that first spark came from, That what, what led to that first interest in martial arts and kind of kicked off your martial arts journey. Well, you know, I always love telling this story because, first of all, my last name is Flame, right? So you, <laughs> you say spark. What sparked the interest in martial arts? Yep. The answer is my mom is the one that got me in, involved in martial arts. When my mom was a teenager, she had hoped to do martial arts or she had asked her parents to start training in martial arts. And her parents basically said, no, only boys do martial arts. Uh, you should do something else. And so uh, my mom made a promise to herself of, of some kind saying, you know, when I have children, I'm going to put them in martial arts. So when I was 10 years old, I started training in 1985. My mom took me to a, a recreation center. I don't believe that she did any research. I don't think that she did anything other than pick up the recreation guide, look for the martial arts class that was closest to us, sign me up. And I remember the first day going, being completely and totally just afraid of doing something new. That was that was kind of a theme in my life is that doing something new when I was young mm -hmm. was very scary and I was very hesitant. And so uh, walking into my first martial arts class in the Thousand Oaks Recreation Center here in Southern California, uh, I met my first instructor and I have been training almost ever since. And what was that first style? Was that first style Tung Sudo or was it a different style? It was. It was. So American Tong Sudo, okay. my instructor, great grandmaster, Dennis Ichikawa. Dennis Ichikawa taught and trained uh, for, uh, trained with Chuck Norris, mm -hmm. uh, ran his jokes karate school um, in the early to mid 70s. And actually, I take that back. I think that was late 60s, early 70s that he was training, earned his black belt in 1973. And yeah, he, he ran his schools for a bit. And then when he decided to open a school, he had a school in Tarzana, California, decided to open a school in Thousand Oaks, which was basically my hometown or home area in the Canal Valley. And that's where I started. And, and then I went from there. So Dennis Ichikawa was my first instructor. His name sounds very, I, I want to wonder if I met him when I lived in California, because I went and checked out a whole bunch of schools and met different instructors. And, and if, if he would have ever gone to you know, Ed Parker's internationals in Long Beach in the, in the mid nineties, I'm almost positive. I might've met him. His name just for some reason, right when you said his name, some kind of memory popped into my head. So I wonder if I maybe met him once. Well, he's, he's been around the block for several decades and he has produced um, several black belts who have gone on to open their own schools here in uh, the Canal Valley and the San Fernando Valley. Um, but we've also got branches and splinters of of his lineage throughout the country, a uh, school in Idaho, a school in Georgia. And nice. um, so he's, he's, he's got a pretty far reach. A lot of the black belts, again, in, in our area came directly through him. Okay. And I love the, the, the beginning of it. Cause I, I, same thing. I started when I was 10 in 1984. <laughs> so we were, we're really close to the same age and mine was different. Mine was, uh, seeing the movie, the karate kid. 
And and when we when we walked out of the movie theater, they were handing out free passes to a local Tung Sudo school. So that was my first system too. <laughs> so wow, yeah, yeah, kind of cool. Where was that for you? So that was in Little Falls, Minnesota, right smack dab in the middle of the state, hometown of Charles Lindbergh. But no, it was a above a it was in a dance school above a police station. It was a <laughs> master Bill Nelson and. Tim Broda were the instructors. Uh, Bill Nelson was actually one of my, my first guests on the show. I went back and interviewed all my old instructors, so which was kind of fun. I you know, trained with him for, I think, two years when I was younger, and then uh, switched to, to Shotokan for a while, and then branched off into many other things. But yeah, you know, Tung Sudo was my first, and uh, i still still friends with Bill and still talk to him quite a bit. That's amazing. Now, you you went, you, you, you loved it, obviously. What was it specifically? Now, what was it that made you, you know, your mom put you in, but what made you want to stick? with it mm-hmm. yeah you know so i started training at 10 i think i made it about a year or so maybe about a year and a half earning my seventh cup blue belt okay and i actually took a a, a short break at that time and just in that that short time i remember being a part of uh, a couple performances that our our school did it was it was it was called a uh, the martial arts ballet and it was something that my instructor kind of hosted every year for several years and put music and performance together to make a, a show. So it wasn't just your average demonstration. Mm-hmm. It was, it was you know, a 60 to 90 minute show, if I remember. And that was one of the things that really was in, in my earliest memories, what I thought was so cool. And and I remember that all of the black belts had Tong Sudo and their name embroidered on the back of their uniform, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember it was the second show that we did because the first show, I think I was a yellow belt and I was just, you know, we did like a little hand combination, but we were part of the big show, right? But the second time we did it, I was so intrigued. I thought it was so cool that all the, the higher black belts had this embroidery on their uniforms. So I said, hey, you know, I asked my mom, can you can you get our, our uniform? My brother also trained. Can you get our uniforms embroidered for this performance? And so she did. And she went to, I think she actually went to the dry cleaners that was right next to uh, where we were training and, and taking class. And I remember bringing the uniform in and I was so excited to wear this uniform for the performance. And my instructor looks at the uniform and he goes, only black belts have their name embroidered on the uniform. I felt, I was like, I felt so good. And then I felt (laughs) so small very quickly, but we still got to wear it. He still, he said, you know, you already did it. So, you know, (laughs) go ahead. Right. And so that those performances were like some of my, my earliest and greatest memories that just, I love that performance aspect about it. I mean, we had this whole ninja scene and, mm-hmm. and my instructor put together these skits of the different styles of martial arts, highlighting how a particular form was done. We had wow. self-defense scenes and, and just, I don't know. I just really love putting the music and the martial arts together to create a performance. So after that first year and a half, maybe almost two years, we lived a little further away from, from this school. And so we took a break and then I picked up my training again as a young teenager at a school that was closer to me. So although Dennis Ichikawa was my first instructor, Bill Poet had a school in Newbury Park, California. That's my hometown. Okay. And, and so I was like, oh, wow, this is Tom Shido, same, same system, same style. Bill Poet trained with Roger Lacombe. Roger Lacombe came from the Chuck Norris, Pat Johnson era. And I figured these are going to be, this is going to be a great fit. And so, you know, as a young teenager, I definitely had that chip on my shoulder, that attitude that needed to be adjusted. But we signed back up at this school. And for whatever reason, you know, Bill was great. Most of the instructors were great. I had one instructor, man, he really wanted to make sure that I knew that uh, that chip was not going to stay there very long. And I remember distinctly at the end of a test, I was actually testing for my seventh cup green belt again. Uh, because I had to start over oh, at wow. White Belt because it, it, okay. it had been maybe a year or so before I started back. And so on that final test, the instructor decided to, um, you know, give me a nice, uh, you know, some nice love taps, I'll call them. Right. But uh, I remember my face meeting the mirror several, several times wow. and then my face meeting the floor several times. And my mom was like, we're done we're not going here. We're going back to Mr. Chikawa school. And again, you know, Bill Poet was great. It was just, he had an instructor that was working for him that I don't know, just mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that I knew that that chip wasn't going to stay there very long. So, um, and, and many years later, it's awesome because I've, I had the opportunity to have Bill on my podcast and, and cool. kind of talk about that. 
story a little bit too. But we um, we went back to Mr. Chikawa, and from that point on, I, I pretty much stayed with it consistently all the way through, earning my black belt, and then moving on to start my own school. So. I think, you know, initially it was the performance and the, the music and the martial arts that was intriguing. But at the same time, being part of a martial arts school for me, I had a great childhood. I had very supportive parents in everything that I did. I didn't play a lot of team sports. As a matter of fact, I don't remember playing any team sports other than one year of baseball when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. Okay. And um, I love being part of a team, even though martial arts is an individual sport based on your individual achievements and accomplishments. But it just felt like I had another family. It felt like I had people that were rooting for me. I had people that supported me. And it was exciting to go to class and to see the people that I had made friends with and become close with. And I think at the end of the day, it was the people that were part of the school that kept me coming back. Nice. So now at any point then, did you get involved in the competition for martial arts? I did. Um, I, I really enjoyed both doing forms and sparring. I did mostly regional and local tournaments i never mm -hmm. went to that you know that higher level of, of going to you know national tournaments but i i enjoyed i enjoyed competing in forms a lot I, again it goes back to loving that performance aspect of martial arts but i also loved sparring and i remember pretty distinctly that that my instructor was very big on when we went to a tournament he wanted us to do both he wanted us to do forms he wanted us to spar it was never one or the other okay and so um you know again local tournaments had some fun some great memories um never really pursued it much higher than that local level okay did you ever get into the weapons competition was that ever part of your tournaments I did not. Okay. Weapons were, you know, when, when we were coming up in the ranks, the only weapon that I ever learned as part of our training was the bow staff. Okay. And we learned a form by Tadashi Yamashita. He came to a convention, a seminar that we would host once a year with our organization. And we learned this bow form. And that was really the only weapon that we encountered. Uh, much later, you know, when the, with the invention of uh, XMA and all the all the extreme weapons right. um, that, that came a lot later. But weapons were really not my thing, per se. OK, and I remember when I when I started in 84, it was um, the system I was in was Mudakwan Tung Sudo. And then mm -hmm. at some point in, it was either late nineties, early two thousands, they actually changed it to Subak Do. Cause when I, when I interviewed right. Bill, Bill on my podcast, he's, he's now teaching Subak Do. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming that's, uh, must only be certain, certain aspects of, of Tung Sudo that, that did that switch and change over and stuff. And you, you guys weren't affected by that at all. Mm -mm. No, no. When, when Mr. Chikawa branched out um, away from the Chuck Norris system, he, you know, developed his, his own system of the American Tongshido Alliance. And so we, we really stuck with the same core people within that group. We, we never really launched back into a, a larger organization. Okay, cool. And at what, what age, what belt level did teaching become something that you realized you were interested in? Mm -hmm. The very first time that I warmed up a class or call it teaching, mm -hmm. I remember I was, I was a green belt. I think I was 14. And one of the instructors was either late or didn't show up. So my instructor turned to me and said, well, I don't think they're going to make it tonight. So I'm going to have you go warm up this class. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> well, just get them to move around a little bit. Just, just get them started. Okay. <laughs> and so I did what was, uh, and, and by the way, this was an adult class and okay. I was 14. Nice. And, and so I look out at the group and I say, okay. You know, this is what we're going to do. And I proceeded to do warm ups that I love to do. And in my mind, like I wanted to, you know, I wanted to really make sure they got a good workout. And of course, back in those days, we would all kind of do the workout and do the warm up with our class. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just remember working this class so hard and they were pouring sweat and tired. <laughs> and then they had to, and then my instructor came out to finish the class and they're like, wow, that was the hardest warm up ever. <laughs> and then looking back, I go, man, what an idiot. Why did I do that? Like, you know, but I think it was a combination of not knowing what to do. And at the same time, my ego saying, well, I mean, I guess I just need to work these guys as hard as I possibly can. So I would say that that's the first memory I have of, of teaching or warming up a class. 
That's cool. Definitely got by me by a few years. I think my first time I was 19 or 20. Okay. So, yeah. And my, my instructor kind of threw me to the wolves. Similar to yours, but not quite. He had he had told me he wanted me to start teaching. I've been helping with classes. And he told me one day he's going to give me my own class. And I'm like, I think I was a purple belt. And I, so I figured it'd be like white belts. And I, and I showed up on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock like he told me to. And I look on the floor and they're all higher ranks than me. I'm like, oh, and like, when does my class get here, sir? He's like, oh, they're out there. And he goes, Mr. Brian's in charge. And he left. <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, oh, boy. Yeah, threw me to the walls. But, it, I mean, it was great. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming he talked to them beforehand. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, uh, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. But, yeah, it was scary for about the first five minutes. But <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I remember looking out and, and being 14. And, and there were people that were, you know, definitely old enough to be my parents you know and and i remember just kind of getting that that initial look that initial kind of glare of who's this kid what's he doing you know and and i remember feeling a little bit you know i was feeling insecure about that at, at the moment but then all of a sudden you know that you have to put on that instructor face or put use that instructor voice or mm-hmm. just kind of project that and i think you know, I learned that night just how to overcome uh, an insecurity and just play the part and play the role and do what I needed to do at that time. So I think it was a valuable lesson, um, although I didn't maybe see it right at the time. Okay. Now, think back to that first time when you first helped, 14 years old, to now. What do you think has changed the most about your teaching style over the years? Well, I think now... I look more at the individual students and their needs and their wants at the same time. I think when I was teaching as a younger instructor, especially that teenager, I I didn't think about that at all. I just thought I was there to do a job. I was there to focus on the physical, Mm -hmm. right? And it it was mostly focusing on the physical, having the perfect punch, having the perfect kick, having the perfect stance, working them until you know, they were tired. But I think now what I understand a lot better, especially having my own children go through my program, learning how to understand people better, um, learning to communicate better. I would never ask for anybody's input or feedback on how I taught a class, right? Mm -hmm. I thought that if I taught a class, it would be the best class in the world, you know, (laughs) especially after a few times. But now I find myself asking for feedback all the time. Almost, you know, some may think almost too much because I'm constantly asking, you know, what do you think of this or what do you think of that or how did this help you? Because I use that information to help me teach a better class. So at the end of the day, I think my bigger focus was on the physical aspect then, whereas now growing the individual seems to be the center of my focus. And you mentioned your kids. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because this is one where, depending what instructor I've talked to, it's been probably fifty fifty depending which way they went. So when you're when you first decided to get your kids involved in it, was there any part of you that were like, maybe I don't want to teach them myself. Maybe I want to you know have another instructor do that. Uh, you know, maybe you'd be afraid you'd be either too easy on them or even too hard on them because they were their kid. Did any of that cross your mind, or kind of how did that come about? I think all of that crossed my mind. <laughs> At one point or another, my daughter started training first. So my daughter's older. Uh, She's 21 now. My son is 18. So my daughter started when she was about two and a half. I was really, really eager to get both of my kids (laughs) to start training as soon as they possibly could. Um, As soon, I mean, as soon as they could walk and as soon as they could get out on the mat and stand on a line, I wanted them out on the floor. I knew the benefits of martial arts, not only having, you know, benefited from them myself, but I knew having watched so many kids because I, by by this time, I, I opened my school or started my first program in 94, opened my school in 96. Uh, my daughter didn't start training until 2004, five, somewhere in that area. Okay. So I had been open, you know, for quite a while and seeing how other students have gone through the program, but I couldn't wait to get them out on the floor. And with my daughter, I think that I pushed really hard, you know, I, as she got a little bit older, you know, we were doing private lessons together every single week, in addition to two, three, four classes. And I think that I pushed too hard Mm -hmm. when my son was born and, and he started training. 
there were times where I was like, just get out there and have fun. <laughs> I just, I, and I put him out there two and a half, same, you know, I mean, we start at three, but you know, instructor's kid, push yep. him a little bit sooner. <laughs> yep. So I got him out there, but my attitude with him was different because I didn't want him to burn out. I didn't want him. I, I really wanted to see my son go forever. Not, not that I didn't want my daughter to do that. Mm-hmm. I did, but my daughter found dance as her passion. Nice. And so by the time she was four or five, she was doing martial arts, uh, martial arts and dance. And she got her second degree black belt in, in karate. And after that, you know, she just had more interest in dance and more interest in, you know, her social life and, you know, everything else that comes with that. And mm-hmm. I think that if I would have had a different approach, maybe, maybe uh, she would have trained a little bit longer. Uh, but my son, I was like, all right, I'm just going to kind of lay low, you know, hang back a little bit. I let him train with more people. I didn't make him train with more people. I just mm-hmm. let him take other classes. By this time, I had more people teaching classes for me than I was actually teaching class anyway. And I really love just kind of watching him learn from someone else. I didn't push, you know, private train with him one-on-one a lot. And um, my son has gone on now to earn his fourth degree black belt. He's getting ready to earn his second degree black belt in Krav Maga. Nice. And he's, he's 18. He's still training. He's never taken a break. He's never wow. stopped, although he's played several other sports. Mm-hmm. So I was really eager to get them to do martial arts as quickly as possible. Um, I think I pushed my daughter too hard, maybe even to the point of burnout and pushed her away. I think I either got lucky or I hit it just right with my son to plant the seeds early, but not, you know, not go too far. And he's, he's just continued to blossom and he'll be a better martial artist than, than I ever thought that I would have been Nice for sure. And how about your, your wife? Did you have to convince her to take her first lesson or was she already interested in martial arts when you met? She was not interested in martial arts (laughs) when we first met, but, uh, you know, funny story. There was a, there was a, a girl that I had been dating prior to her Mm -hmm. and, um, and they were, you know, friendly friends. And at that time, uh, they both wanted to take class and I said, okay. And my wife, uh, to this day will probably still say that the only reason that she stuck it out as long as she did is because she wasn't going to let the other person win. (laughs) So So that was kind of a funny story. But, um, you know, when I started my martial arts program at a park and rec, just like how I started in 94, you know, my wife was on the mat with me teaching classes, helping me collect, you know, money for uniforms and collecting their, you know, their tuition at the time. And then when we opened the first uh, facility, she was right there running the front desk, doing all the behind the scenes. And uh, she earned her fourth, fourth degree black belt as well over the years. You know, she took a break when when our kids were born and mm-hmm. and then kind of in and out, in and out. And currently she's um, kind of dabbling in our Krav Maga program again. So it's been really neat to have her get involved. But I would say that, no, she probably had zero interest in martial arts, but she had every interest of winning. <laughs> and uh and it worked out. I love it. That's great. So to back up a little bit, you mentioned this. So what led to you deciding to start your own program and open your own school? Yeah. So um, I had been teaching for my instructor for a couple of years. And as a matter of fact, I got an opportunity. I was hired at several of the other karate schools that were affiliated with our organization. And I just, you know, I really love teaching. I really found that that was, that was my calling. That was my purpose. That's what I was going to do. And I knew that the school that I was at was not going to provide me with a career. I could work there as long as I wanted to. I had private lessons booked, you know, every single day that would kind of supplement my, my income with, you know, what I was getting paid to teach. A lot of the teaching that I did early on in my career was trading for lessons. I couldn't afford lessons. So, you know, part of the teaching and part of that whole mentorship, if you will, was built upon the fact that I couldn't even, you know, my parents couldn't afford martial arts. I couldn't afford paying for it. So I would teach and trade. And, um, but, you know, again, it led me to opportunities teaching for other schools. And I just knew that this is, this is what I wanted to do. And at 19 years old, the only way that I knew how to start a martial arts program was how I started. You know, I started at a rec center Mm -hmm. and, you know, after so many sessions, you know, you'd get invited over to the karate school that was the the flagship for that particular program. 
And so I said, well, I'm going to go start a, a park program. And I asked my instructor, Dennis Ichikawa, I asked his permission. I also, at the time, was teaching for Mark Cox, who's in Chatsworth, California. Yes. So Chatsworth and Thousand Oaks, if you, if you go right between those two, is where Moore Park is. So I would pass on my way coming from Newbury Park on a 23 freeway. I would go out to Chatsworth and I would pass through Moore Park. And I didn't really know what Moore Park was all about. It's a smaller community. You know, keep in mind that Thousand Oaks, Newbury Park area had 100, now 120,000 probably. And then go through and Simi Valley has 120,000. Moore Park is stuck right there in the middle with at the time, probably 30,000. Now it's at about 36,000. So we're, it's a, it's kind of a small little town mm -hmm. really. But I said, well, it's not too close to Mr. Chikawa. It's not too close to Mr. Cox. I'm not stepping on anybody's toes. They feel like I can do this. I think this is where I'm going to go. I didn't do any research on, you know, what, what the median income was, how many schools. You know, I didn't do all the research that I would probably consult a new school owner looking to open a school uh, should do. I just said, okay, this is a good spot because it's far enough from this one and it's far enough from this one. And it doesn't have a lot of karate schools. That was really the criteria. And the, the rec center, Arroyo Vista Recreation Center here in Moore Park, uh, was just being built, actually. It was finished in 1994. And I was one of the first applicants to contract instruct a class. Nice. And so I started with one day a week, and then I added a second day a week. And then it got to the point where I started having intermediate advanced students. Well, I say intermediate advanced, mm -hmm. probably more intermediate level, but getting there because I had some transplants from some of the other schools that used to go to Thousand Oaks, but they live in Moore Park. So they they would kind of find out where I was. And before I knew it, I was teaching there four days a week. And the park's like, look, we can't continue to give you this space to teach all of your classes. <laughs> We're going to have to cut down on the number of classes that you offer. And I said, well, I have enough students to where if they were all paying X dollars a month, I could probably afford to open a karate school. And so I looked for an industrial warehouse because it was the, the cheapest thing out there. Yep. I had 2000 square feet. I think it was, I think the rent was either a thousand dollars or 1200. One of our students was a commercial real estate agent, helped me find it, helped me, you know, do the whole deal. I think I had to pay first month and last month. I don't even know where I got that money. I, I didn't borrow it. I never had to take out a loan, but I think that's about the amount of money that I had in, in my bank account because I had just done a tournament to you know raise money to open the school. I invited all the all the schools in the area to have a tournament and I took that money. That was the seed money to open the school. And I had I really had no idea what the heck I was doing. I had no business experience other than teaching martial arts at the other schools. I had no sales experience to speak of. I mean, I had signed people up and, you know, done trial memberships and sat in the office and pitched them, but, but nothing real, like, you know, real professional on any level. And, um, I had a hope, I had a dream, I had a passion and I, I had no backup plan. I'm just like, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. That's awesome. And then at what point did Crowd uh, Maga come into your life and you decided to add that in? Yeah. So the original name of our school was Tongshudo University. That idea came from a, an instructor of mine. His name is Brian Nan. He was the instructor that was pretty instrumental in me getting prepared for my black belt. He was my private instructor um, all throughout my red belt ranks. And uh, I spent a lot of time with him, you know, and, and time training, but also time just kind of talking about, Hey, what do you want to do with your life? What do you, you know, do you like teaching all this stuff? And he had the idea that he was going to open a school and he was going to call it Tong Shido university. And he was going to name me his head instructor. And he had all these plans of, you know, how we were going to grow this and open multiple schools, all, all this different stuff. And I was like, wow, that's super awesome. I would love that. But that never actually came into play. But the name that he came up with, Tongsudo University, stuck with me. So when I opened my school, that's what I called it, Tongsudo University. We taught Tongsudo, of course, and I thought it just sounded professional. I thought it sounded strong to be a university. Mm -hmm. So I used that name, and it probably wasn't until seven years ago. I was first introduced to Krav Maga 20 years ago. Okay. My instructor, Mr. Cox, had been training in Krav Maga. But I didn't really have any interest in adding that to my program at the time. 
You know, I did a lot of Japanese jujitsu. I earned my black belt in Ketsugo jujitsu, nice. um, which is more, uh, again, a Japanese style versus the Brazilian jujitsu. And uh, so I was kind of busy with that and, you know, getting the business, you know, really ramped up. But it was about seven years ago that I just noticed that our system of Tong Shido, and I had known this for a while, was not necessarily the most realistic self-defense. It wasn't the most effective self-defense that we could have employed, right? We were much more focused on forms and performance and and stuff, but and we would spar and we would grapple, but the self-defense was just not strong. And specifically, seven years ago, I was looking to learn more about weapons defense, gun defense, knife defense, things of that nature. And this is when I went to Mr. Cox and I said, you know, I really want to learn uh, how to defend against a gun or a knife because we just don't have that in our curriculum and part of our program. And so it started out just learning that. And uh, little did I know that he had bigger plans for what was what was going to happen. So after, gosh, probably almost a year maybe of learning gun defense and knife defense, he says, all right, listen, you're going to start testing in Krav Maga. And I was like, I wasn't really interested in doing that because I had already done the jujitsu thing. I had done combat Hapkido. I had done other systems and, and styles. And I just at that time was not really focused on earning new rank. But then I started thinking about it more and I started thinking, you know, this, this is really what I want to add to the program. This is really what I want to do. So I said, okay. And we took our first test and then we just continued from there. So after probably two years or so of, of really immersing myself into Krav Maga, I kept thinking, well, the name of our school is Tong Sudo University, but now we're teaching Krav Maga. Maybe it's time to rebrand and, and rename the school. And I originally, before Tong Sudo University, I always thought, you know, more part karate, just like my school that I trained at was Thousand Oaks Karate or Chatsworth Karate. It was always the city and karate. And so I kind of went back to that thought and said, well, why not just keep it simple and call it more part karate and Krav Maga? Because everybody knows karate versus Tong Shido. Yep. So more part karate and Krav Maga, we rebranded the school, rebranded, you know, the logo, everything. And it's it's really stuck because I think that our school at that time as well was was really for the first time in in all the years of being in business, really had a strong reputation as being the premier martial arts school in our area. Our school is heavily involved in community service and community outreach, our chamber of commerce. Uh, local government, you know, my wife and I volunteer in several organizations. And I just thought it was it was fitting to put the name More Park in the name of the school and just simply call it More Park Karate and Krav Maga. So that's the backstory on 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 both names really. That's awesome. I like that. So what led to the podcast? Kind of what, you know, what what made you gave the idea for it and just talk a little bit about, you know, some of your guests and what people can expect if they tune in and listen. Sure. So the podcast came out of a result of COVID, to be honest. You know, during COVID, being here in California, we had some very strict, very strict guidelines. And being a small town, you know, people were really watching what we were doing. And so, you know, we were teaching virtually for several months. And at that time, I had my instructors were teaching all the classes online. And I was kind of taking a back seat. You know, I really, I felt like I was missing the connection i was missing that you know that interaction you know the just simple day-to-day -day interaction and a couple of friends had actually started a podcast around that time rafael gomez was one his coaching call podcast mark cox had his uh his podcast you know now it's real talk with mark cox mm -hmm. and i i was watching these podcasts and i'm like man this is a super cool idea if i can jump online and talk to martial artists about their experience of, you know, how they started their school and what were their struggles. And during that time, talking about COVID was real easy. What are your challenges of martial arts? Well, not teaching in person. How, you know, how have you been able to pivot? All these things, but, you know, really, really getting down to it. And that's really how it was born. And it's it's really morphed and, and changed because my initial thought was I have a ton of influence from the martial arts industry. And I wanted to highlight and talk with some of the leaders in our industry just to share information. And then it spawned into uh, being introduced to speakers, authors, 
athletes, comedians, coaches of all different industries. And so although the majority of my guests are martial arts mm -hmm. instructors or coaches or leaders, it's really spread out quite a bit. So I, I've been very fortunate to have 187 guests so far wow. with my entire year still booked out every Monday and Wednesday. <laughs> um, now currently adding on a few Fridays here and there. And I just keep looking down the list. And I'm like, man, this is <laughs> this is pretty amazing, you know, to have these conversations. And and I, you know, selfishly, I have learned how to uh, you know, really, really embrace you know, everybody's information as my own personal coach for the day, my own personal consultant, my, you know, sometimes it's a spiritual lesson. Sometimes it's uh, how to teach a, a better class, sometimes how to run a better business. But I really look at every call as an opportunity to learn and to grow and to share information. That's cool. Yeah. And I noticed a, a few that of my future guy, like, uh, John Hackleman. I know he's been one of <laughs> crazy schedules. So I've been trying to get him scheduled for a while. I talked to him about a year ago. <laughs> I still haven't been able to mm -hmm. get him scheduled, but he's one I've wanted to talk to. And, and same with Ernie Reyes Jr. He, he had said yes. And then, then he ended up having his health issues. So still, right. still hoping to get him on the show. He'd be, he'd be a blast to talk to you, but it's cool. Just looking through your list and stuff. And, and I, I love it. It's, I'm, there's definitely enough room for many, many more martial arts podcasts and, and doing their things. And it's, uh, I will definitely put a, put a link out there for it when the show comes out, but congrats on that. It, it's fun to do. And like you said, just looking at the list, I mean, me, I'm at 123, I think. And just looking mm -hmm. at some, some of the people I've talked to, same thing. I'm like, I can't believe they said yes. Well, there were, there were definitely a few where, you know, in the beginning, I reached out to that immediate first connection, people that I already knew, already had a relationship, yep. you know, those, those were easy. And then, you know, I would, uh, some days I would just kind of get brave and just reach out to, you know, someone that I didn't know, but had heard a lot about, or someone that were not very close, but we've had conversation, you know, and, you know, most of the martial artists that I've reached out to have been very receptive and very you're just kind of excited. You know, I, I think we all like to share our story about martial arts, how we got started, our training, yep. our lineage. Um, it's just one of the things that's so fascinating about martial arts in general. But, you know, now I have people where I have a guest on the show and they say, hey, I know someone that would be just mm -hmm. an amazing, you know, and then the connections that have come from that have been you know, pretty neat as well, because now I'm, I'm actually meeting new people that I've never met before, never even heard about, but yep. have an amazing story. And I truly think that, you know, any person has a story that could benefit someone else. So if someone's listening to one of my podcasts, and of course, you know, each episode like yours is, a, is about an hour long. You know, if you listen to the whole interview, you're going to learn something or you're going to relate somewhere. You're going to, there's going to be some reassurance, right? Yep. And, and I think that people really, that really resonates with people. Agreed. And like you said, the referrals, I think I have one guest that is probably through one connection or another has sent me probably 20 guests. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they love, I say every guest, Hey, if you know someone who you think would be a good fit, send them my way. Some don't, yeah. but a lot of them do. Like, Oh, I think you, you know, I had a guest that was on my show like almost two years ago, just out of the blue. Hey, I think this person would be a good guest. I'm like, thank you. Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's cool. It's, it's like, it's fun to do. And like I said, there's an, enough martial artists in the world, enough people in the world that it's, you know, we're not going to step on each other's toes. And even if we have the same guests, you know, we're not going to ask them the same exact questions and right. it's fun. I mean, it's not like I, I, I told you, you know, before we started recording, I started in radio and it's different when I worked in radio, it's like, you, you would never share stuff with other stations and, and help out other stations. Cause they're the, they're the enemy. You, you want, you want them only listening to your station every day from 6am to 9am for your morning show. With podcasts, right. people can listen anytime. They can tune in anytime. So it's different. Yeah. I think it would be very interesting to listen to the same person on multiple yep. podcasts or platforms, you know, because you may even hear a different side of the story, a different perspective, you know, coming from the host that brings that out in them. So, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, you know, I'm a huge, I love watching biographies. I love reading biographies, you know, martial artists, professional wrestlers, mm -hmm. actors, you know, leaders, influential leaders, you know, just reading about their life. Because I think when you read or, or learn about someone's life, just like I tell my students in martial arts, you can always learn one of two things, or you can really learn both by watching and listening to anyone. You can learn what to do 
or you can learn what not to do. Yep. I honestly think the only regret I have about starting my podcast is it cuts into my reading time. I used to read a book a week and I probably only read three or four since I started my podcast over two years ago. Every bit of free time I'm working on editing audio, scheduling guests, doing, I mean, just like starting this past Sunday, two days ago until next Sunday, I think I have eight interviews that I'm doing. So yeah, trying to get ahead a little bit. It is a good thing. It's, it's, I love the interview and I love editing audio and stuff. It's just the editing part, as I was explaining before, takes a long time. (laughs) So, but I love doing it. is why I went with the live video format because <laughs> exactly. what I do is what goes up and I don't touch it. I have not gone back and put anything on audio platforms, although I probably could. I don't know that I mm-hmm. would say should, but I, I definitely could put them on those oh, yeah. audio platforms. And uh, there's something for me about the live format yeah. that I really enjoy too. I'll tell you, it definitely pushes me outside of my comfort zone at times. And yeah. and sometimes I will be brave to ask questions that push the guests outside their comfort zone too. Because I think that, mm-hmm. you know, we all know, or, or, you know, if you're someone that has that white belt mindset, that learning mindset and growing growth mindset, you know, if we're not pushing out ourselves outside of our comfort zone, then we're not really growing. We're really just staying the same. Very true. All right. So in your almost 40 years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that just rises to the top? You keep coming back to it. It's super important to you. I would say that the one thing from martial arts that the one lesson is that I can learn from anyone. I learn from my instructors. I learn from my employees on how, you know, some of my employees can teach a class you know, in some cases better than I can, which I I really try to learn from them. I can learn Mm -hmm. from my students. I learn from three-year-olds how to, you know, just kind of have fun and and interact without, you know, any kind of expectations sometimes. So I think in my 40 years of martial arts experience, that, that would be my answer is that I can learn from anyone. I may not have known that when I was a young teenager, but I think looking back at my 40 years of experience is that I can learn from anyone. Great answer. All right. So what are your thoughts on MMA and the UFC? And is that something you're a fan of? I'm a huge fan of the UFC. Um, I love MMA for, you know, just the, the pure sport. Like I can't even watch boxing anymore Mm -hmm. because I enjoy MMA so much. And I, I watched UFC one and I still to this day watch almost all of the pay-per-views. My son is a UFC fanatic. He knows every fighter, all the stats. He knows all the stuff. I love how much it has evolved because the athletes in the UFC, you know, you have a a really full, well-rounded fighter that can stand up, wrestle, jujitsu, and put that all together. I just love, I love the UFC. I love watching it. I love how it's evolved. You know, a lot of people in the beginning talk about how it was, you know, just a human cockfight <laughs> and how it was so brutal and barbaric. But, you know, at, at the root of martial arts, why was martial arts created? Mm-hmm. You know, martial arts was used in war. Martial arts was violent, right? But there's also the other half. There's the martial and then there's the art. And I do truly still enjoy the art side of, of of martial arts you know forms and kata i think that there's so much value to it but to answer your first question love the usc huge fan used to always watch the ultimate fighter that kind of bridged together my yep. my love for reality tv and a sport that i love um so yeah i love it if someone who's been a fan from the beginning like me i always got to ask do you deep down do you prefer the old school usc like the first 10 15 episodes or do you prefer the what it's become now Mm, I don't know that I can say that I prefer okay. one or over the other, you know, because looking back, the early years were, were tough man contests, yeah. you know, yep. it, it was just literally a tough man contest with, you know, no gloves, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and, and it was really focused on pitting one style against the other, you know, it was always uh, judo against the kickboxer, taekwondo against you. Right. Yeah. And, um, but I can appreciate how much the athletes have evolved and the, 
you know, professional aspect to it, the performance aspect, you know, again, remember I'm a huge professional wrestling fan right? and uh, having spent, you know, almost 10 years of my life as a professional wrestler, you know, I can appreciate that part of how, you know, the UFC has definitely taken some notes from WWE. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys, do you have a good local MMA scene? Do you have local fights and stuff or how far do you got to travel to see local stuff? There's not a lot locally. Okay. Um, you know, I'm in the Ventura County area. Yep. You know, Boss Rutten has a school in Westlake Village, which is not too far from us. Mm -hmm. Of course, his involvement with uh, Karate Combat. Yep. And um, there is the uh, House of Champions out in the San Fernando Valley uh, that put out a, a ton of good fighters. Um, you know, that school stemmed out of uh, the original Jet Center, students of Benny the Jet. Yep. You know, I, I just don't hear about a lot of... Uh, quote unquote, smoker fights out there. Um, there's not really a, a major MMA scene, at least in the Ventura County area that I'm aware of. Lots of MMA gyms, mm -hmm. people that say they teach M MMA, right? right? I mean, because I think, I think MMA has become a very cliche term right. in some sort, right? Because if I take karate and Krav Maga or Tong Sudo and Krav Maga and add in a little... Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or some weapons is my school truly an MMA school is it a mixed martial art well I mean I guess by that term mm -hmm. like I'm mixed different martial arts together but am I a fighter school I'm gonna say no because I'm not I don't have students that I'm training to go to the UFC or any you know lower level but um, yeah so you know sometimes I think that that's um, a little misunderstood or yeah. that that term uh, MMA just kind of gets thrown around you know oh what do you what what style of martial arts that used to be the question what style of martial arts do you teach mm -hmm. and kind of a hard question to answer in most schools now because we all have our base but then i think we've all mixed our martial arts to make a better yeah. better system but um yeah not a lot of you know professional okay. there is a ufc gym um that's in oxnard not too far from okay but uh, yeah, can't really think of anything else. Good. All right. So I got a few fun questions to wrap it up. Here we go. Now this one, it doesn't have to be four. I've had as few as two and as many as eight. So as is whatever you want to put on there, but who would you put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Oh man. Someone <laughs> just asked me, someone just asked me this about professional wrestling literally today. Nice. Okay. My Mount Rushmore of martial artists. Um, well, Chuck Norris is definitely going to go up there. Nice. Bruce Lee has got to go up there. Mm -hmm. June Ree has got to go up there. Very cool. Um, Joe Lewis. Nice. Is going to go up there. Bill Wallace. Very cool. Man, I'm going to feel so bad if I forget someone that's <laughs> like totally obvious, but like those are jumping out of my head. And uh, mm, I might leave it there, but I'm going to. That's a good Mount myself. Rushmore. It's a really good Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to kick myself later and say, I wish I would have said him. That's all good. All right. How about a favorite martial arts book? Favorite martial arts book? Martial arts book. You know, I've read so many books on Tong Sudo mm -hmm. regarding like the origins of forms and step-by-step -step instruction. I've read several Chuck Norris books that I really enjoy. I don't know that I have one book that's jumping out of my head that's martial arts. I will say... I remember this wasn't a book, but this was a binder. Mm -hmm. The very first thing that I read about martial arts business was how to make $100,000 a year <laughs> teaching martial arts by Andrew Wood. Nice. I, think that's, I remember that pretty distinctly. Well, you, you said you love like reading biographies. Is there a really good martial arts biography you've read that stands out? I've read about Ken Shamrock, again, Chuck Norris, yep. Bruce Lee's series of books. Have you, have um, you read Benny the Jets yet in his, his biography? You know, I have not. Oh, I highly um, recommend another it. Another out there is is Dave Kovar has written a couple books that I really enjoy. Yep. So yeah. Okay, that's good ones. All right, this one I'm I'm hoping you have an answer for. You're around my age, so I think you will. Favorite martial arts video game. Favorite martial arts video game. Well, I'm you know I'm an '80s kid, and, mm -hmm. and the first one that I that was big and that I I mean Kung Fu, <laughs> yep. the original Kung Fu game, yep. but Mortal Kombat. I would say Mortal Kombat was a big favorite. And by the way, let me go back on that book. Mm -hmm. uh, Beyond Matt by Mr. Mark Cox is one of my new favorite martial arts books that talks about his his story. So I'll add that cool. to the list. But Mortal Kombat, okay. that's it. I'll, I'll say that's my favorite video game martial arts. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show? I mean, I love The Ultimate Fighter. 
Nice. I, I used to love one because it's a mix of I love reality TV mm-hmm. and I love the UFC Ultimate Fighter. I'm too young to remember when Bruce Lee was in the uh, Green Hornet, Cato and uh, Green yep. Hornet. Yeah, Sidekicks. Oh, Ernie Grace Jr. Love it. Yeah, I remember seeing him going. That kid is so cool. Like. <laughs> so good and then when i had him on my show i told him i was like dude i watched you on tv when i was a kid yeah. and i don't think we're too far in age but man that was that was super cool too disney channel needs to put that on there on, on disney plus because it's it's owned by disney and it's not on disney yeah. plus yet so they need to put it on there so i can watch it again how about a favorite martial arts movie oh blood sport nice okay classic <laughs> blood, answer blood sport blood sport and best of the best nice with, with uh simon Rhee and philip Rhee. you're you're my i think my third guest this week who has said best of the best so <laughs> it's kind of a cult classic right because yes. you know it's not a real well but i mean james earl jones was in that movie so yes. i don't know it was good uh, it was so good and, and yeah I, I was lucky enough to have simon on the show i'm working on philip but uh yeah nice. simon was great to talk to and uh, yeah just i know that I, I have one friend is the only friend i have that hates that movie <laughs> and i just have to give him crap every time we talk I'm like, how do you not like best of the best so yeah so good i know so you know, well so. uh fun fact edon gross who was the um who was eric robert's son in that movie yes edon gross is uh one of uh, a black belt in mr chikawa's system and, and with mr cox yeah i've actually tried reaching out to him to get him on the show i as of mm-hmm. now as of now no response but fingers crossed he'd be fun to talk to yeah absolutely and he did uh i think he did some voice of chucky too yes i believe so all right final question this one does not have to be a martial arts movie but it can be it's up to you just a favorite movie fight scene Ooh, favorite movie fight scene yep and i've had people go from star wars to marvel to the princess bride to enter the dragon anything goes oh man see when you throw out favorite movie my mind immediately goes to the godfather and goodfellas but when you say favorite movie fight scene maybe i have to go back to you know the best of the best mm-hmm. because that mean fight scene uh, when Simon and Philip Reed go back and forth, that was That's so, so super. I mean, just amazingly choreographed. Um, they, they obviously have, you know, really good chemistry. Um, and it was so emotional, such an emotional end. Yeah, that might, that might be, I mean, that's what's coming to my mind right now. Of course, I'm going to listen to this, this whole interview later, I'm going to listen to it. And I'm like, why didn't I say that? Or why didn't I say this one? But that's what's on my mind right now. Hey, that's what we'll go with. I like it. Well, before I let you go, anything that maybe we didn't cover or that you want to make sure we mention, you know, before we wrap it up? No, um, I appreciate the opportunity. Really love being on the show and, and just talking about, you know, martial arts. Um, maybe we do a part two and talk about professional wrestling another time. But that was a that was a huge part of, of my life for a long time. But uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. it was, it's fun when you get me thinking of answers to questions versus <laughs> me asking someone else the questions but uh that's right i would love for everybody to go check out the master motivation podcast on youtube cool and like i said I'll, I'll put a link out there for that and your school and hopefully get you some new listeners maybe some people to pop in and, and take some classes too but i i truly appreciate your time and, and can't wait to get the episode out all right well thank you for your time and thanks for all you do keep doing a great job Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you'll join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.